BridgeBank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to those committed to leveraging innovation to make the world a better place. BridgeBank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. BridgeBank, be bold, venture wisely. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio, it was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. From KQED. I'm Erica Cruz Guevara, and welcome to The Bay, local news to keep you rooted. San Jose residents are making a big decision about the future of the nation's 10th largest city. The San Jose mayor's race is a competition between two candidates, Santa Clara County Supervisor Cindy Chavez and San Jose City Council member Matt Mahan. Whoever becomes mayor will be responsible for a lot of big issues like homelessness, affordable housing, policing, and the future of the city's downtown. And on Thursday night, KQED, in partnership with Univision, hosted a mayoral candidate forum at the Mexican Heritage Plaza. The event was hosted by KQED's Guy Marzorati and Maria Antoinetta Mejia reporter for Univision. And today, we're going to play that debate for you. Stay with us. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Hi there, I'm Randal Fattah from Throughline. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. Supervisor Chavez, you will get the first answer tonight. We're then going to alternate answers. Councilmember Mahan, you will have the last word at the end of the evening. It's safe to say that a great many residents of San Jose feel like the city is going in the wrong direction. They're hungry for change at City Hall. Supervisor Chavez, you've been in local government for the better part of 25 years, first on the city council, now on the county board of supervisors. Councilmember Mahan, you have the support of the current mayor, Sam Licardo. He's raising hundreds of thousands of dollars to ensure that you follow in his footsteps. So my question to both of you is what makes you the best candidate to bring effective change to City Hall? And Supervisor Chavez, we'll start with you. Thank you all so much for being here. The most important thing, I think, as I look to the future of San Jose is really what experience that I've had as a council member and a member of the Board of Supervisors that's going to really be able to meet the moment. We're facing very challenging situations, policing, homelessness, housing, you know, the affordability of that housing, and getting San Jose cleaned up again. As a member of the Board of Supervisors, I really led the effort 
to address COVID-19, and I did that by making sure that I met with all the mayors of all the cities and all the city managers of all the cities to make sure we were on the same page and that saved lives. That experience of bringing business, labor, nonprofits, the community together, uh, faith institutions, along with government, I think uniquely qualifies me to be ready to meet the moment that will come forward. And I think it's gonna be a very challenging time for San Jose. Thank you and good evening to everyone. I think that our city is absolutely going on the wrong track. And the reason I believe I'm the right person to be mayor is that I have had experiences outside of government in which I have seen how to deliver results through systems of accountability. When I first got to City Hall, I was shocked to see that we would pass a multi-billion dollar budget without committing to concrete, measurable goals and holding ourselves accountable for delivering those goals. I was a public school teacher just up the road here in Alum Rock where I had to know for each of my students who's on grade level, who isn't, and what does it take to get that student on grade level. I was in the business sector for over a decade, building a couple of software companies that empowered millions of people to participate in their democracy, and I had to make payroll. And what's missing at City Hall today is focus and accountability, and I have the experience to bring that focus and accountability to local government. Thank you so much uh, to both. So we're gonna go to one of the questions. During the pandemic, one of the most affected ethnic groups were Latinos many of which didn't have the opportunity to work from home like others. So what will you do to make sure that they have a speedy economic recovery? Let's go with Mr. Mahan. Thank you. You know, when government is failing to deliver services effectively, whether that's public education or police response or speeding up permitting to build housing or struggling through a pandemic, it is our most vulnerable and marginalized communities that bear the brunt of those struggles. I will fight for a city hall that is more effective and efficient at delivering the services we are responsible for. We have to permit building housing faster so that there is more housing to bring down the cost and make it more accessible. We have to demand that our public schools offer a high quality education to all of our young people. Everybody in our community deserves to live in a neighborhood that is safe and clean. And today we are failing too many neighborhoods, particularly on the east side, and actually delivering those outcomes. And I will use performance management and data to guarantee that we are accountable for delivering the same quality of services to east side San Jose as we do to the rest of the city. Thank you. Uh, now we go with Ms. Chavez. Thank you, and uh, thank you for the question. During COVID-19, recognizing that we had the Latino community, the Vietnamese community, we had a number of communities that were dramatically impacted more than others, in part because of the kind of work that they did, being in restaurants or um, service work, being clerks at grocery stores. What we had to do was we, and we did this, is we started to get people to go door to door to get people tested and vaccinated. And the benefit of that is that we got to employ quite a lot of people as promotoras to make sure that they were getting the word out um, in different languages so that we were able to make sure that we weren't um, leaving people behind and doing our very best to make sure that, that we weren't having people getting evicted. We had an eviction moratorium because of that. And we also did some funding to make sure that people could stay in their homes. Those were the immediate things that we did. I think what we can do now is making sure that government works for everybody. And one of the challenges we had is with, in particular with small businesses, not having access to capital, not being able to get their tenant improvements and that kind of work. And that's what we should be doing now to make sure that people can, can get on board and get safely um, back to work as quickly as possible. We're now gonna dive in on some questions related to homelessness, mental health, and evictions. A question for you both. San Jose has just cleared one of the city's largest homeless encampments near the airport under pressure from the federal government. We know this is not gonna be the last encampment of its size to come before the city. My question to both of you, and I'll start with City Council Member Mahan, is what will be your approach as mayor to dealing with those kind of encampments as they crop up? Well, let me back up and talk about our homelessness crisis more broadly. We have to stop doubling down on a strategy that isn't working. We are currently spending most of our dollars building brand new apartments at a cost of $800,000 a door just to help someone transition off the streets. 
we have to be much more pragmatic and cost-effective in scaling up basic but still safe and dignified shelter so that we can end the era of encampments. Yes, we need to manage encampments better and provide more services, but I want to end the era of encampments, and that starts with scaling up basic shelter quickly and cost-effectively. It also will require us to push our county leaders to expand inpatient care for addiction and mental illness and to invest in programs like job training and job placement. We should, none of us should accept the situation on our streets today, which is that in our city alone, we have over 5,000 people living outside every single day. Last year, over 200 people died on our streets. We need to end the era of encampments, not just manage the situation on our streets. Supervisor Chavez. So um, to try to answer the question that you've raised is that one of the challenges that we see in our community is that we're working to get people housed as rapidly as we can. But I think what's happened in our community is people can't see it, in part because of places like Columbus Park um, and that large encampment. And so one of the things that I think we need to make sure we're doing is that as people get services, both short and long-term services, and we clear an area, whether it's Columbus Park, a creek, or a park, that it stays clear and that we don't have people go back into that location so that we can actually demonstrate to the public what we are and aren't accomplishing relative to getting people housed. One of the most important things I think to understand is that of all the people we've gotten housed, and that's about 20,000 since 2015, 35% of them have been placed into housing that's been newly built, but a majority of them are in housing that already existed, and we place them in that housing as effectively and as quickly as we can. One last thing about that encampment is that it's really, really important that the city and the county collaborate so that we make sure we get people permanently housed. It's important to do the interim housing as well, but long term, if we don't have permanent housing, we'll just be dealing with that person over and over again. So the question is from Maria Quinones-Artiz. She's from the Washington Gardner neighborhood. And her question is, how are you both gonna approach the issue of evictions? Specifically, she asked, how will you stop landlords from driving people out by raising outrageously high rents, unquote. And we'll start with you, Supervisor Chavez. Thank you. One of the investments that I've made as a county supervisor, and I would want to continue to do this as a member of the city council, as a mayor, um, would be to make sure that we continue to allow and make available legal services for people who live in our community. Because one of the challenges is that folks don't always know what their rights are. And that investment to make sure that folks have the tools they need to stay in their homes is really important. The other thing that we have to do, and this speaks to keeping people from becoming homeless, and this is why the eviction moratorium was so important, is that we have an opportunity to, in a very cost-effective way, keep people housed. Having someone on the street who's mentally ill for a year in services is $63,000. On average, keeping people housed costs us, in one-time money, about $5,000. The other thing we have to take a look at is making sure that we're offering services, not over-servicing people, but giving people the services they need to stay in their home. Maybe that's job training, maybe that's connection to affordable childcare, and really making sure we're doing what we can to keep people in the homes that they're in today. Councilmember Mayhan, that question on evictions to you, and I guess the flip side, how you'll deal with landlord-tenant issues as mayor. Yeah, it's, a, it's an important question. The city actually has begun a, a small test of providing legal support to folks who are facing eviction. We have a number of tenant protections that are important, and I'm proud that the city has. I think, though, that when we talk about this issue, we, we need to move beyond just pitting a tenant and a landlord against one another in a zero-sum game. The reality is that we, in our state, have broken the housing production market and are creating a lot of bad decisions. When we talk about homelessness, when we talk about evictions, displacement, our neighborhoods with two, three families to a home, that all goes back to the fact that our region is adding jobs at a much faster rate than we're building housing. And the reason for that is we've created so many rules and regulations and fees and taxes that most of the folks who build housing don't want to build housing in our city or our region anymore. We've added six jobs for every home that we've built. So I am all for keeping in place strong tenant protections, making sure tenants' rights are protected, giving them access to the resources that they need. But these are bad trade-offs. We have to get serious about removing barriers to building up in places like downtown, 
in your transit and adding housing supply to better balance all the demand that's out there so that people can find an affordable home. And we have, we have shot ourselves in the foot on this for far too long, and that's what's leading to the kind of displacement that we're seeing. Thank you for that answer. I want to follow up with you, Councilmember Mahan. A, a centerpiece of your plan to deal with homelessness in the city has been around the idea of emergency interim housing, also known as tiny homes for the homeless. But when six of those sites, either to build them or expand them, came up before the city council in June, you actually voted no. You said the city staff should spend more time looking for an alternative to the project that was proposed for your district. Isn't that kind of reluctance, that kind of push for delay, part of how we ended up in this homeless crisis to begin with? Well, actually, I have moved forward a site that will be the largest in the city with 206 units at Branham and Monterey, very proud of that work. We are working on a safe parking site for RVs. I've been a champion for every affordable housing project in my district, but I want to be very clear about that vote. I actually authored the memo that argued for the approach but then, when staff brought forward sites with no community engagement, I had to say, we need to slow down and actually tell the community what the plan is and answer their questions. And so Councilmember Cohen and I, the two districts where new sites were proposed with no community engagement, with no guarantees about what investments we would make in that neighborhood to make it safer and cleaner as a result of building a transitional site. I thought that was wrong. If we don't do community engagement properly and build buy-in for these solutions, we will not be able to scale them up. Now that site, or a site in my district, will be moving forward before the end of the year. I'm fully committed to scaling up these sites, but we have to at least let people know where we are planning to build sites and give them an opportunity to provide input. And so on the safe parking site that we are moving forward rapidly, we have formed a community advisory committee in my district to give input on the site and meet with the operator. And I think that's the right approach to take if we're going to build public support for these solutions. Supervisor Chavez, Governor Gavin Newsom was in San Jose last month to sign a landmark reform to mental health care called Care Courts. The idea is to use the courts to push for services, housing, treatment for those with severe mental illness who we so see so visibly suffering on our streets. Santa Clara County, despite widespread support in the legislature and in the public for this plan, Santa Clara County is not going to implement Care Courts till the end of 2024. And this comes after it took the county roughly 20 years to Im implement Laura's Law, which was a reform to outpatient treatment for, for the mentally ill. I'm wondering how you'd respond to critics who say the county and you as a supervisor have been slow to enact some of these reforms for folks with mental illness who so often end up on our streets. Yes, thank you for the question. I mean, first of all, I would just say a couple things about Care Court. I think Care Court is really important. But one of the challenges that Care Court does not address is the ability for us to conserve people who need help. And so I don't think we were, you know, we're in the second phase out of reluctance. I think it's more that we're trying to understand how it is that it's actually going to move the dial and help us help people who can't help themselves. The rules for conservation are very, very high, and they're high in part because people in the past abused each other. Um, so I understand we want to be careful about it. But I think one of the most important things we can do is actually take a look at working with the state legislature to change those rules so that we can frankly, put people in facilities that are going to be helpful for them in the long run. I just want to add one other thing, and this relates a little to the question you just asked uh, Mr. Mahan, and that is that for the development he's talking about, the county actually is an investor in that development. I think it is really important that we look at every single option available to us to help people, whether they're mentally ill, and homeless and look for solutions that actually have the outcome that we intend and that we're doing it in a way that's both judicious, right, and we're doing it in a cost-effective way, but also in a way that's very assertive because so many people are suffering on our streets, so many people. Can I jump in on that one? I think on the issue of mental health, this is a critical issue that, that impacts not just homelessness but public safety. And frankly, I am a very strong supporter of care courts. I think it is a travesty that our county board and Supervisor Chavez have decided to defer something, a real solution that has finally come along for the first time in years, 
that San Francisco and Los Angeles have decided to move forward with, thus also putting at risk hundreds of millions of dollars that are available for implementation, what Care Courts does is actually give a judge the ability to mandate that someone go into inpatient treatment, which is exactly the kind of solution that we need when we have thousands of people on our streets suffering from severe mental illness. I want to give you a chance yeah, to follow up on thank that. Thank you. Um, first of all, it, it doesn't actually do that. What it does is it gives us an opportunity to work with people who are seriously, um, who have psychosis of some kind. It's a, it's a we think between 15% of the people statewide that have this problem that are um, either homeless or not homeless but need services. It gives us an opportunity to put services around that person and try to persuade that person to take services. But they still have to go through the same process for conservation. Now, there's only one difference, and the difference is a judge can say to the conservator, I want you to take a look at this person so they can make a direct referral. But that that's the only change in the legislation. And it's important to understand that because whether it's uh, AOT, Laura's Law, or this, when we tell the public that they're gonna get this outcome and this is really not the outcome we're gonna get, it further builds distrust. And, and in addition to that, it also makes people very nervous. Now, we didn't defer it because we didn't want to engage. We're, def we're In fact, I'm not sure we deferred it. I think we're in the planning stages of implementing this in the most robust way we can. And by the way, Judge Manley, who's part of our court system played a leadership role in developing that. He's playing a leadership role in helping us implement it. Thank you both. We are going to move on to questions about uh, public safety and criminal justice with Maria, but I just want to remind everyone in the audience, we are taking your questions as well. So if you have them, jot them down. A, a producer will come around and, and collect them. Maria? San Jose, like other cities, faces a shortage in police officers. How will you ensure that San Jose PD hires new officers that reflect the diversity of the city? And how can San Jose Police better retain its officers, as many officers are already working very long hours and overtime? And let's start with you. Thank you. First of all, um, thank you for the question. And I'll just start by saying that the city of San Jose um, should and could um, hire many more officers than it has today. When I served on the city council 16 years ago, San Jose was the safest big city in the country. At that time, we had 200 more officers than we do today here in the city. We have 100,000 more people. Um, the question that's asked is a really good one, which is how do we recruit the best and the brightest and make sure they reflect the community that they're, they're working in? And when I was deciding whether or not to run for mayor, there were a number of people that I went out to speak to, and one of them was the Peace Officers Association because I wanted to make sure they were all in, that they were gonna be helping us recruit and retain and working with our community colleges and working deeply with the communities that, um, that live, work, and play already here. You know, I, I think for one, we don't nearly uh, connect enough with high schools and the colleges in our areas to let them know about all the great jobs there are in public service, whether that's being a police officer, a firefighter, a nurse, a doctor. We have so many needs, a planner. Um, and so I would look forward to a much more robust relationship with the community in terms of being able to get them attracted to wanting to work in our, in our great city. Well, I want to start by making sure people understand why we have fewer officers today. When Supervisor Chavez was vice mayor, she and her colleagues voted for unfunded and in some cases retroactive compensation commitments that led the city to ultimately accrue over $4 billion in debt that we are still struggling to pay off today. 15% of our general fund, 15 cents of every dollar you pay in taxes today comes off the top to backfill the unfunded liabilities that we accrued in the 90s and early 2000s. We could have a police department today twice the size of the one we have had we not made fiscally irresponsible decisions 20-some years ago. I will prioritize police staffing as my number one priority. We can, in a fiscally responsible way, add a couple dozen officers a year if we want to fund other services. But I will also work to make sure that our officers feel supported. And right now, many of our policies do not achieve that, starting with the fact that your officers in our thinly staffed department are arresting the same people over and over again because the rest of the system is failing to intervene in cycles of addiction and mental illness and criminal behavior. If I could just respond to that, I, I think a, a couple things that I would just say. One is that 
what really happened here was that in 2010 and 12, then Mayor Reed decided when the economy crashed that we were gonna blame public employees for that. They put an initiative on the ballot that got all of the community angry at our police officers and our firefighters. They voted to make a change to the pensions, which later had to be voted on again because it had to be fixed because part of it was unlawful and we lost 300 officers. Part of the reason I'm so interested in being mayor of San Jose is that is a problem that needs to be fixed. The reason our officers don't feel appreciated isn't because of the, I mean, what Matt just said, it's because they don't feel appreciated by the city. They don't feel like they um, have the support of the public. And that is something that absolutely needs to change. In addition to that, the city of San Jose has spent 50 million or $45 million over the last five years on overtime on overtime, that means you have enough money to hire officers. Have, and we want people to respond, we want them to be the best and the brightest, we want them to act in the most responsible way. I do not want an officer, hour 15, coming to my home if I, you know, if I need them. I, I want a fresh, you know, well-rested somebody who wants to be there. We can do this together, but we shouldn't rewrite the past. And by the way, it was an economic depression that crushed the whole world not the city of San Jose. At the same time, the county of Santa Clara renegotiated all of its contracts, all of it, got money back from our employees, lost no employees, and kept the, the county of Santa Clara working. I, I worked uh, on both of those at the same time. Thank you so much. Uh, if you want to reply to that. Yeah, I, I think you're the one rewriting history. We, we're talking about over $4 billion. I'm not here to, to defend Mayor Reed, and, and sure, Measure F was a better solution than Measure B, my father was a public sector worker who retired on a pension. I don't blame the workers who signed up for a job and were told what their compensation would be. I blame the politicians who were too cozy with their biggest political supporters and made deals that were good for the politicians and those union leaders, but ultimately put the city on the path to bankruptcy and we need responsible leadership that's going to push back when your biggest political supporter asks for things that aren't in the common interest. Okay, so this will be your last Yeah, rebuttal. thank you. I, on this front, let me just remind you, it was the entire council, I would argue that they weren't all cozy with the police department, and one of them was Mayor Reed, your supporter. I, I, we were competing as we are today, as we are today to attract people to come to the city of San Jose. And what I think, the reason I think it's so important that we understand what happened is because the implications of what we do next rest on what we understand happened in the past. And, rep and honest to goodness, I think that blaming workers for the economic downturn, that is actually what happened that destroyed our police department. And we are gonna get it back, we are gonna get it back, and we're gonna get them back to work. Uh, so we're going to move on. Uh, I know that you both want to go further into this, but we have uh, some time uh, allowed for each one. It's a question uh, from Marisa Martinez. Uh, she grew up in San Jose, and she currently lives in District 3. And her question is, how do you plan to implement alternatives to policing? Thank you very much. First of all, let me say I think the most important investment we can make is in prevention of crime in the first place, which is about investing in our children, their education, after school programming, job training, jobs for at-risk youth. When it comes to police response specifically, not every 911 call requires an officer with a badge and a gun. Our city and county, I think very belatedly, given that other places like the state of Oregon have been doing this for years, have begun to do a joint response in which a mental health professional is the first to respond. I think that is a great solution that we should be expanding. I think we also, in terms of improving policing, because every neighborhood I go to, people ask for more police officers, more engagement, faster response times, more community policing to build relationships. And I think that one of the things we need to do, in addition to strengthening the independent police auditor, is build an early warning system that uses data to identify officers who are outliers in terms of their use of force or other statistics that are troubling to make sure we intervene and get them training or reassign them to a desk job or help them find a different career if the data is indicating that they are not living up to our standards. And so I think there's a lot we can do to improve policing, but I just want to reinforce, 
Everywhere I go, one of the number one requests I get is people want more officers, faster response times, and more community policing. Ms. Chavez. We have a great opportunity, and that is that now that 988 is, gonna, is a national number, and I'll just share all of that with you, that if you see somebody who's in mental distress or you are feeling suicidal, you can dial 988. And what the good news about that is, is that 988 will also offer an opportunity to have uh, peer mentors, the trust program, available, and that just got kicked off. We're hiring people uh, now um, to be able to do that non-police um, response for somebody who's got a mental illness. Like, I think that is probably what the person's question was intended to ask about. Um, the second thing I'll add is that in addition to that, we do have two different types of police response now for people who have mental health issues. And one's called MCAT and one's called PERT. One can actually respond with mental health workers even when there's a, a weapon involved in the, in the um, engagement. And the other is when there's no weapon. I say all of that because if in fact we could have more police officers and continue to hire more clinicians, we'd be able to send more of these kinds of responses out. And what's really critical is that we have a very old fashioned system, right? You dial 911 and a fire truck comes and a cop comes and we need to be able to be much more refined so that we're using our resources more carefully. I think 988 is gonna give us that opportunity to learn how to do this better and better and better. All right, uh, so we're gonna to move to uh, another question. Now, uh, this is an individual question uh, for Cindy Chavez. So one of the groups that has supported you openly is the San Jose Police Association. However, there are many residents, in particular undocumented immigrants, who do not trust law enforcement. How will you try to improve the perception of law enforcement among these communities? Yeah, thank you for the question. One of the most important parts of our system is making sure that everybody feels confident dialing 911 or 311 or 988. And one of the challenges we have, again, because we don't have enough officers, is that we don't have the really deep community policing that we used to have, where officers actually got to know people in the neighborhoods that they were in. And so I think that one of the best things we could do is make sure that as we're hiring those officers that a community policing is a core component of what those officers do to get to know their neighborhoods. And I also think it would allow us to customize the police response by neighborhood. What are the things that neighborhood is most concerned with? Are they most concerned with um, violence? Are they most concerned with porch pirates? You know, all of that. Um, and I think that that's a, a key area. And then the other thing we've done, and I think Chief Garcia really did this before he left, was making sure that people knew they weren't being asked if they were documented or not. And I do think that most people in our community understand the difference between San Jose police officers and uh, immigration. And, and I think that that conversation and that continued leadership from people like Chief Mata is gonna be very, very important for the community. Thank you so much. And now we're gonna go with an individual question uh, for Mr. Mahan. You propose the use of technology to solve crimes and you support the use of plate readers but many are worried about their privacy and are afraid that their private information might end up in someone else's hands. For example, undocumented residents are worried that ICE might access this database. How will you make sure that this information is used properly? Thank you for the question. And just to clarify for the audience, I've supported and actually helped get into the budget funding for automatic license plate readers, which give our officers another tool we have a very thinly staffed police department and when we have street racing and speeding and smash and grab robberies, we can't have officers everywhere they need to be all the time. Technology helps us to do better enforcement. But to the point of the question, it is very important and I'm proud of the work that our team is doing at the city, that we have very clear data privacy standards data retention standards. We delete the data on a regular schedule unless it is being actively used to investigate a crime. We have an advisory council of, made up of privacy experts who give us input on the policies we should implement around the collection and use of that data. So it's a very serious issue. We are taking it seriously, but our officers need more tools and frankly, your license plate number is not exactly private information given that it is tacked on the front and back of your vehicle. Thank you very much. Um, so I am going to toss back to my colleague, Guy Marcerati, for questions on housing and development. 
Thank you, Maria. The state of California says San Jose needs to build roughly 24,000 units of low-income housing over the next decade. My question for you, Councilmember Mahan, is how do you actually get those affordable units built? It's a great question. I'm going to go back to something I, I brought up a little bit earlier, which is that we have made it too expensive and too difficult to build housing, even where we want it, in places like downtown San Jose and near transit, where it will not make our traffic significantly worse and our air pollution significantly worse. So my approach to addressing housing is to remove barriers to allow investment to flow into the city to build housing where we need it. Historically, 90 plus percent, I believe about 95 percent of the state's housing stock was built by private developers who got loans from a bank to build housing for a growing population. We have added so many rules, such slow permitting times, just to get an environmental review to build housing where we want it in downtown can take a year and a half, which means the person doesn't invest in building housing there, they go build in the Central Valley, which is far from environmentally friendly. And when we build market rate housing, we have inclusionary requirements that ensure that a portion of it is deed restricted to be affordable. But ultimately, we have a scale problem. We are off by orders of magnitude. We are seeing the amount of permits issued and units online dropping year over year over year. And I think we need to acknowledge that we can't just pass another billion dollar bond that, by the way, costs $2 billion to pay off and doesn't build that much housing when the cost of construction is over $800,000 a door. We need a fundamentally different approach that starts with making San Jose a place where people want to build housing and can make it pencil out so they can build the housing we need where we want it in places like downtown and near our transit corridors. Supervisor Chavez, every city has to set these lofty goals around planning for affordable housing. How do you actually get it built? Well, first of all, let me just say the state of California's rules are um, are ones that we're going to have to fight city by city in part because the expectation is too high in terms of what they're asking us to to um, hit. But all that said, um, a lot of the challenges that we have here in San Jose are kind of self-inflicted. As an example, we made changes to our general plan 10 years ago that dropped the percentage of Per, you know, permits that were being even requested by 25%, which means that over the last 10 years, we lost about 10,000 units of housing. In, you know, and, I, and I think that the point about making sure that we're being creative is really an important one. So Valley Transportation Authority, at my request, has 200 acres that we're putting up RFQs and RFPs for so that you can build uh, at workplaces or you can build housing there and a third of all of the housing that gets built has to be affordable. So some of it very low income, so some low income and some um, market rate. I mean, um, I'm sorry, just uh, very low, low income and yeah, extremely low. Extremely yeah. low. I knew I missed one of them. So in any case, if we can support their efforts to get that housing built, um, you know, I think that we're going to be able to get closer. One thing we need to do is we actually, honestly, we need to bring everybody around the table, including the developers, to figure out how we're going to hit those numbers. I want to turn to a question from our audience. You both have said you want to increase the supply of housing in San Jose. This one audience member asked, when you say we need to cut regulations in order to incentivize home building, what specifically, if anything, would you reduce? Supervisor Chavez, I'll start with you. Thank you. Um, what I would do is that the city of San Jose used to allow for four general plan amendment changes a year, and now they only allow for one. I would still go back to adding four, um, because I think that's very important. Um, second is that I think we have some um, developers, frankly, that we've worked with and that the city has worked with that they've built up the trust of a neighborhood and communities that they should be able to move a little faster than those who may be newer to the community. So I think that's another way. But probably the most important thing we can do is hire enough people to work in our planning, building, and code enforcement department. We're short 26% of the people who work there. And because of that, it slows everything down. And if you think about it, planning, building, and code enforcement is a nerve center of a city. It's how you make sure new businesses can come on board, new housing can come on board. If people want to upgrade their homes, that they can do that more quickly and more rapidly. So making sure we, we hire there. And in the interim, having a public-private partnership or expanding the one that we have so that we're able to get rid of the backlog as we restructure that department. Because that's one of the areas where we need 
to really retain talent, and it's not structured in a way to do that today, but it would be a priority for me because all the things we talk about, whether it's policing or community centers or library hours, all of that is dependent on the, the planning, building, and code enforcement department being able to operate in an optimal fashion. Just a quick follow, and I'll put this to you, Councilmember Mahan. This idea of staffing up the planning department, there is a lot of vacancies. Hiring is a problem there. Is it just paying more money? What's your how are you going to actually change that? Yeah, I think it's two things. I think it's the way it's structured. So what happens is it's a fee-for-service um, model in the city of San Jose for many parts of it, but for this department in particular. And so what happens is when the economy dips and there's not as much money, we start laying people off from that department. What would make more sense to me is to invest some general fund dollars so you keep that department steady the whole time. Because if you think about it as the economy dips, then we're starting to hire people as the economy goes up and we're behind it every single time. So one thing is to make sure that it probably is paying people better, but it's also looking at career ladders so people will want to stay with the city of San Jose because we get these really talented, smart experts and then we lose them to the private sector. Council Member, I'll give you a little more time for cracks at both of these questions. First, from the audience, specific regulations that you would cut. And then second, this question about the planning department. How do you solve these staffing issues? Sure. So on the regulatory question, one example I would give you is, is that we have a requirement around ground floor commercial building where if you're building a residential building, an apartment building, we have requirements around building out com ground floor commercial, even if vacancy rates in that part of town are incredibly high. And the developer just writes it off and says, there's no economic value to this. The city's just forcing me to do it. What's the effect of that? It makes every apartment above it that much more expensive because that we are mandating that they build something that from their view has no economic value and very well may sit vacant. So we should be smarter about that. In key commercial corridors, we should preserve that requirement. On secondary side streets that are not critical commercial corridors, we should relax it or remove it. We should be much more flexible in how we implement rules like that. A second example would be environmental review. In strategic places like downtown and around some of our higher frequency transit hubs where we want to encourage development, we should pre-authorize and programmatically conduct as much of the review process as we can so that it is as close to plug and play for the person bringing forward that project as possible. We still treat these applications as a one-off bespoke project when we're building most of the same things over and over again. And we should be absolutely pre-planning, programmatically clearing most of those hurdles so that it's not taking 18 months just to get through the, the CEQA process. On the second question of the planning department, after public safety, turning around that department, closing that vacancy rate, investing in technology and streamlining these processes will be my top priority because every dollar of investment in our city and the housing we need and the jobs that we want, the improvements you make to the home, the tenant improvements for a small business, every dollar of investment flows through that department. I just spoke to a restaurateur the other day who was on the fence about buying a pro or, sorry, leasing a property in downtown, but was so scared that the process through which we would review his plans for improving the space to be able to move in his restaurant, he was so worried about how long it would take that he couldn't take the risk of signing that lease. So we lost what could have been an investment in a great restaurant downtown, specifically because of his fear that he could be stuck for six, eight, ten months waiting to get clearance to actually open his restaurant. We, we miss out on those kinds of opportunities all the time. Thank you both. Maria? Yes, thank you so very much. Uh, we will continue uh, to another subject. And uh, this first question is going to be uh, for both of you. Uh, I will ask uh, Mr. Mahan to start. So this is from um, Maricela Gutierrez, Executive Director of SIREN, uh, as I was saying, a local immigrant and refugee rights organization based here in San Jose. And her question is, knowing there is an active campaign to allow non-citizens to vote in local elections, if elected mayor, how would you vote on the matter and what are your thoughts on the matter? Thank you for the question. So I, I don't support expanding voting to non-citizens because I think there is a, a better approach that the community supports. 
which is focusing on expanding pathways to citizenship. People who are here working hard, raising their kids here, paying taxes here, who want to make that commitment to our country should absolutely have a pathway through which they can become full legal citizens and with it earn the right to vote. As I've gone around the city, including to many of our immigrant communities, I've heard over and over again that citizenship is an, it's an aspiration. Proud, one of the proudest days of their life was becoming a citizen. And I think that most of our community, and myself included, views voting at this, time, at this point in time in our country's history as a fundamental right and responsibility of citizenship once someone makes that commitment. And so I think, and in fact, as mayor, I will be a vocal advocate for expanding pathways to becoming citizens and encouraging folks to take advantage of those pathways. Yeah, thank you for the question. For the last, I don't know, maybe 25 years, um, I have played a leadership role in continuing to fight for immigration reform. And I think that the desire for people to vote um, is because they're so tired of waiting for the change to happen that they've been working on, and including Maricela's organization for generations to fix the immigration system. I don't support um, non-citizen voting. I do, and partly because I believe that we have to continue to fight to change the immigration and, and make sure that we're addressing immigration reform. And let me just make an observation about this. For many, many people in our community, depending, that they don't even understand how broken the system is, that it depends on what country you're coming from, what reason you're coming, whether or not a law has been passed specifically for your country, we may have an opportunity for the first time in generations, depending on how this election goes in November, to actually change and address immigration reform. Congresswoman Lofgren has been leading the effort in the nation. We should support her efforts. And as a community, I would play a leadership role and will continue to play a leadership role in fighting for immigration reform that creates pathways for citizenship that's fair and transparent. Uh, all right, so we're gonna move on to another question. And this is an individual question uh, for Ms. Chavez. You led a campaign uh, to prohibit the sale of fuel that, uh, with lead in the Reed Hillview Airport. However, planes that take off and land there can get this type of fuel anywhere else. In case you are elected, how will you protect the 52,000 residents who live around that area and can be affected negatively? Thank you for the question. Um, you know, this is one of those um, instances where we're pushing as hard as we can and we really need the public's help. And so let me just explain what I mean by that. Reed Hillview Airport has had 52,000 people living right on its, uh, right around it for so long. And it's really a mismatch of, of land uses. So that's one issue. The second issue that you're raising is um, a really important one, which is piston engine aircraft is still the, it's the single largest lead emission in, in the air in our country, in terms of if you're gonna get, you know, get um, poisoning from it. What we did is we, in January, said we're not selling any more leaded fuel. The FAA, in February, sent us a letter telling us that we had to start selling leaded fuel again. So we are in a process right now with the FAA trying to make sure that we can continue to primarily sell unleaded fuel at that airport. In addition to that, we're looking to the EPA to have them find endangerment findings so that really it's saying you can't sell this fuel anymore, which is what we're trying to get a national movement around. Because in addition to the 52,000 people who live around Reed Hillview, we think there are thousands and thousands of families living around the 20,000 airports in the country. And just a little bit of lead per causes permanent brain damage for children, permanent. Um, so what we would have to do is we have to keep on the FAA, we have to keep pushing the EPA, and we have to work with the, with the, between the city and the county to make sure that Reed Hillview Airport doesn't take any more airport improvement grants so by 2031 we can in fact close that airport. Thank you so much. And now we're gonna go to an individual question uh, for you, Mr. Mahan. So your campaign confirmed uh, with the San Jose Spotlight publication at the end of last month that several campaign workers of your campaign were not classified correctly and were hired as consultants instead of employees, which means they were not receiving the correct benefits. Can you explain to us how that happened and walk us through the process, and did you personally hire those employees? 
Thank you for the question. So we are, we are running an incredibly grassroots campaign, taking on the political establishment. Our campaign is full of high school and college students and volunteers, and I'm incredibly proud of the campaign that we have run. Our campaign manager was on a gap year from college. Most of our campaign staff, many of whom are here in this room, are, are, were, were in and out of the campaign on, on short-term stints. We treated them as such. We then, of our own accord, contracted a labor expert to review our practices and decided to, re, in an abundance of caution, to reclassify a couple of our campaign staff as full-time employees. There's a new state law, AB5, that makes it much harder now to be as flexible in how we hire people. In fact, sadly, we have some young people who we can't pay a stipend to because it's, it's, it's too risky according to the new law. And so we have people that we've had to say, I'm sorry, you can only participate as a volunteer. We can't even give you the stipend. So it's unfortunate, but state law, labor laws are, are changing and tightening. We're responding. These are new laws. We made the change immediately. But the bottom line is, I'm incredibly proud of how grassroots this campaign is, that we have dozens and dozens of high school and college students running the campaign. We have not had one complaint from anyone working on the campaign. And like I said, the moment that that was brought to my attention, we addressed it with the input of experts. We have some general questions, uh, and, uh, I'm going, and also some questions from our audience. I'm gonna go uh, with some of our audience right now. So, San Jose has the largest Vietnamese population outside of Vietnam, yet we do not have any council member on the board. How do we ensure they have a voice in our city? And this will go to both of you. And uh, Mr. Chavez, uh, let's go with you first. Thank you. So um, I think that's a really important uh, question, and I know that um, that you know at least in my work on the board of supervisors, I've really prioritized my partnership and my friendship with the Vietnamese American community. And as a matter of fact, we built the Vietnamese American Service Center, the first of its kind in the country, and it's focused on providing services of all kinds um, that are culturally appropriate, language, language appropriate, from pharmacy to after-school programming to to ballroom dancing and senior nutrition. It's really an amazing program. We did a program to um, ensure that nail salons were had the opportunity to be healthy nail salons because we had so many young women working in them of childbearing age that were having um, challenges with their health because of the chemicals that were used and not having good filtration in them. And so I've, I, I could go on, but th those are some of the priorities for me. As it relates to, to getting people involved, I think we have to make sure that we have, um, you know, that we're developing leadership. I have a chief of staff, the first Vietnamese American chief of staff um, in the county of Santa Clara, Betty Young, who is on my staff now. And I think we have to find these young people, continue to encourage them and encourage them to run for office. We have quite a lot of people running for office right now from the Vietnamese American community. Thank you so much, and Mr. Mayor. Well, I'm the only candidate for mayor who's supported all of the Vietnamese candidates running for city council because I think representation is critically important. I think it's wrong that our city is nearly 40% Asian American and does not have one Asian American representative. I think actions speak louder than words. I'm supporting the only Vietnamese candidate running for city council in this phase of the election, in the runoff. As mayor, I will actively reach out to the Vietnamese community and all other communities that are not represented on the council not just to invite them to apply for jobs in my office, but to encourage them to run for office so that they, too, can be colleagues on the council. And I, I want to work with a council that reflects the true diversity of our city. So we have uh, one more question to wrap up the night, and it's about civic engagement. We're going to ask both of you about this. Just over a half century ago, in his very first State of the City address, the late Norman Mineta said, quote, our city will not move unless it's given a solid push. That solid push on the part of you, the residents, is your involvement. So my question to both of you is, how will you involve? How will you engage? How will you mobilize San Jose residents to give the city that solid push? And I'll start with you, Supervisor Chavez. Thank you. And first of all, I, it's lovely um, that you chose Norman Y. Mineta. 
and his example. You know, many of you may not know this, but I think he was the first um, Asian American mayor of a major city in the country's history, and I have uh, great fondness for him. He, he endorsed me before he passed away, and he's somebody I think about quite a lot. And you know what he told me? His favorite job ever? He was Secretary of Transportation, Member of Congress, Secretary of Commerce, being mayor of San Jose. Um, but I think that one of the best opportunities we have is not just running great grassroots campaigns and engaging people, um, but I want to just emphasize the Strong Neighborhoods Initiative. I, I would like to establish, reestablish that in every single um, city council district. I want every council district to have a a, a month or a, you know, a time where they're the primary focus of the, of the mayor, to go out to that council district and make your mayor day that in every single one. Um, I think it's really critical that we engage neighborhood leaders in decision making, including, you know, we had a sunshine ordinance that when I was there that hasn't been used in a long time that alerted people to really interesting and important things that were gonna be coming down the pike and not just gave them a little tiny postcard, but really forced the city to get out there and let people know what was happening so we weren't surprising them with new developments and that we really were really engaging people. So, Strong Neighbors Initiative, um, citywide, making sure that everybody had an opportunity to tell their city what they thought and be involved in making it healthy, clean, and safe. Thank you. And Councilmember Mayhan, you've talked tonight about building a grassroots campaign. If you're mayor, how do you carry forward that energy engagement involvement? And should be your last word of the night. Sure. Well, first let me say Norman Netto was a great leader and I've, I'm sad that I never had the opportunity to get to know him, but he's an inspiration for our whole city. I am proud to have the endorsement of four past mayors and the San Jose Mercury News. And I think they've endorsed our campaign because of how grassroots it has been. We have, as I mentioned before, dozens and dozens of high school and college students from every imaginable background, every neighborhood in this city helping to run the campaign. Through them and our other supporters, which now number nearly 40,000 residents who have signed up for our campaign, we have organized over 300 meet and greets in every neighborhood across the city, in front yards, backyards, small businesses, city parks. We are taking this campaign out to the people of San Jose to talk about change because so many of our current policies are not delivering the outcomes that we need. And I will continue in office to reach out to the community, to be honest with the community about the policies that are not working and to advocate for a change in direction when we aren't getting the outcomes that our community so desperately needs. With that, I'd like to thank both candidates for their time and responses. Thank you, Guy Marsorati. I guess uh, I got the right uh, pronunciation uh, from KQED and Univision 14 Cruz, the sponsors and the audience for their participation. Thank you so very much. If you want to learn more about the candidates and their positions for this race and for all other races in the Bay Area this November, keep up with Univision Bay Area coverage on our app. And uh, you can also review KQED's bilingual voter guide at kqed.org slash voter guide. Gracias. Thank you. That was KQED's Guy Marzorati, politics and government reporter and producer, and Maria Antoinetta Mejia, reporter for Univision. We'll also provide a link to the full video of this mayoral forum in our show notes. Thanks as well to the folks behind this forum, including Carlos Cabrera Lomeli, Estefany Haro, Joan Martinez, Jim Bennett, Paloma Cortez, and Juan Carlos Gutierrez Godoy. By the way, KQD's got a whole election guide with information on all the statewide ballot propositions and more. You can find that at kqed.org slash voter guide. I'm Erica Cruz Guevara. Thanks for listening to The Bay. Talk to you next time. Hi, 
I'm Sasha Koka, host of the California Report magazine. Every week, we bring you stories about what connects us in the giant, diverse Golden State. Because what happens in California changes the world. I love this place. We were once seen as, like, the place to be California. The land of milk and honey. That's where you go to Sunshine State. But we just have challenges right now. KQED's California Report magazine. New episodes drop every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. 